Reflections with Marilyn Baker. Brought to you by Torch Trust, the Christian organization with a vision for people with sight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Reflections Monthly Podcast. This is the November 2016 edition. I'm Grace Davis, and I'm the producer of Reflections Radio with Marilyn Baker. On this issue, we'll be speaking to Claire Guest from Medical Detection Dogs about the wonderful work they're doing. We'll also be paying tribute to and looking back on the life of Peter Jackson. We also have a visit from pastor, speaker and author Jeff Lucas about his new book and his tour. And finally, we'll be taking a look at Remembrance Sunday. Due to copyright issues, we have removed all music tracks other than Marilyn's own. So now... Sit back, relax, and we hope you enjoy our show. Reflections with Marilyn Baker. Brought to you by Torch Trust, the Christian organization with a vision for people with sight loss. Hello and a warm welcome to Reflections from Torch Trust, the show that focuses on faith and disability in today's world. I'm your host, Marilyn Baker, and we've got a great show lined up for you today. Now here at the Reflection Studios, we're great fans of dogs. We've had guide dogs on, pets as therapy dogs, and I'm sure we've chatted about our own dogs. But we recently heard about a wonderful thing that some dogs are being trained to do, medical detection. This is where dogs are trained to pick up on illnesses and diseases in humans. It's really incredible that dogs can do such a thing. And so we simply had to find out more. Our producer, Grace Davis, spoke with Claire Guest from Medical Detection Dogs via Skype. Claire, can you tell us a bit about medical detection dogs? Yes, um, well, it sounds like science fiction, doesn't it, really? But what we've discovered over the years is that dogs, with their incredible sense of smell, can uh, be trained or can smell human disease. The story started with anecdotes. So these are people with their own pet dogs who um, the dogs had given them warning to very serious conditions. And in fact, the first story I heard many, many years ago was a friend and colleague who told me that her pet Dalmatian dog had um, constantly licked and sniffed a small mole on her, on her calf. I mean, she was a young a young lady. She was 19 or 20. Didn't seem to be anything wrong with this mole. But the dog was persistent in its behaviour to the point where this lady Jill became fed up with the dog. You know, she had to keep pushing it off. She went to her GP and um, the mole was removed and she was actually called back to be told she had malignant melanoma, the most serious form of skin cancer. And almost certainly, if her dog hadn't drawn her attention to this, Jill would not have survived because it's very unusual for somebody of her age to have had, had, had this cancer. But it was many, many years later that I was lucky enough to meet up with a doctor called Dr John Church. And um, we got together and we actually did the first proof of principle study in the world which was subsequently published in the British Medical Journal and it was in collaboration with the Buckinghamshire NHS Trust and it proved for the first time that dogs could smell the odour of cancer and indeed that cancer had its unique volatile odour that was associated with it and the charity started um, in 2008 following this work and we wanted to focus on investigating this much much further. 
That is incredible. I mean, I think most people wouldn't even imagine that dogs could smell any kind of disease or that any disease would have an odour. The odour of disease was used many centuries ago. Um, I think the Egyptians used it as, you know, some of their physicians used it as a way of diagnosis. And this is obviously before any machines were available. And, you know, we, we are aware, I think, as humans, you know, we can sometimes tell that the change in odour when we're, we're unwell or, for example, it's been long known that somebody with um, a high blood sugar and diabetes might smell of acetone um, and there are other, other odours associated with infection. But what we didn't realise was that because of the biochemical change that any disease or condition causes in our body, the biochemical change actually produces a change in our odour and you know what the dogs are actually looking for are what we call volatile organic compounds that, that come from us and you know if, if nobody's quite sure what a volatile is well if you sit next to somebody with nice aftershave or perfume on that is sort of smell that comes up your nose that's the volatiles coming off them and disease is doing exactly the same thing and dogs with their incredible sense of smell are, are, are able to be trained to detect them. Wow. And are different types of dogs better at it than others? Is there a special type of dog you look for? Well, the charity's actually now got two sides to its work. So we've continued with the cancer detection work and we're looking at detection of um, disease where the, the dogs could assist in diagnosis or the diagnostic process. So mainly focusing on the cancers, but also we're now starting studies with Parkinson's disease and actually also malaria. For that type of work, which we call our biodetection work, the dogs are dogs that love finding things. So active dogs who love sniffing around and using their noses. They tend to be Labrador crosses, Spaniel crosses, Cocker Spaniel crosses and Collie crosses. But we do have um, a whole variety across that. The other side of our work, which is our applied side, which is our medical assistance dog programme, which works just like a guide dog programme where we're placing dogs with individuals with life-threatening conditions and the dogs are trained to warn them of an oncoming medical emergency. They can be more varied in their breed. Again, we tend to focus on the Labradors, but we have also got a couple of Yorkies, we've got an Affin Pincher, and we've got a couple of Mongols, so that there's more variety there. Mm, wow. So with, with that side of it, is that odour-based as well? Do they smell an attack of something coming on? Absolutely. So we, we train in a similar way. Majority of our clients have got very aggressive type 1 diabetes. And what the dogs are able to do in adults or children is warn the person um, as a blood sugar is dropping dangerously low. Now, in a, in a human who's lost what's called hyperglycemic awareness, and there may be some, some listeners who, who have experienced this, it means that when your blood sugar starts to drop, you have no idea it's happening at all. And the first thing that you're aware of is actually when you're coming out of the coma or seizure. What the dogs are able to do is they can smell blood sugar. Us humans can smell a teaspoon of sugar in a cup of tea. Some of us can. A dog could smell a teaspoon of sugar in two Olympic swimming pools. That's how much better their sense of smell is. Now, when the blood sugar changes, the dog can smell it. So he's able to warn the person very, very quickly that they're going into a dangerous blood sugar. And then they can take on sugar before they collapse. And this is just life changing. We've trained by collecting odour from people when they're unwell and teaching the dogs these are the odours we're interested in. We've also trained dogs to detect Addison's crisis, which again are acute crises. For somebody that has Addison's disease, it's the Addison's crisis that might lead to their, to their death or serious hospital admission. So at the moment, it seems that every disease and condition that you can think of seems to have a characteristic odour and the dogs are able to find it. 
That's amazing. And and it sounds, you know, like it's good for the dogs as well. Like you say, they're dogs that want to be active, want to be finding things. So it sounds quite mutually beneficial. I have to say one of the things that I'm fascinated by as a canine psychologist is that the dogs just absolutely love it and they enjoy the work and they they just sort of come alive. It's almost as if they, they have this purpose. And um, one of the things all our dogs um, have for the charity, we have a complete no kennel policy within the charity. We believe that whether our dogs are working in biodetection or they're working in uh, assistance dogs, that you know they want to be with us, they want to work with us and around us, which means we have dogs fostered all over the surrounding areas. I wondered actually, you know, how are their lives when they're off duty, say, yes. so they all have a home... Indeed, they have. I've got three off-duty cancer dogs beside me at the moment. They're very happy when they're not working. They have a, a very normal, enjoyable life. I know there's a book coming out about medical detection dogs. Can you tell me a bit about that? The book is called Daisy's Gift, and it tells the story of how the charity is developed. And also it tells a different story about how Daisy, my dog, actually led us to understand so much more about cancer detection and it has a personal note for me because Daisy lives in my home and comes into work with me. She's a very, very accurate prostate cancer detection dog. But a few years ago, she started to behave a little bit differently around me and she started to look a bit anxious. And actually one day when I was taking her for a walk, she started to nudge against me. To cut a long story short, she led me to find a lump. I went to the doctor and shortly after, I was given a, a diagnosis of breast cancer. It was a very, very deep-seated breast cancer. And I was told that without Daisy having drawn my attention to it, my prognosis would have been very poor. So I really wanted to tell the story of the charity and how really Daisy has changed the way that we believe cancer may be diagnosed in the future. We really, truly believe that the dogs are telling us something that could save thousands of lives. Wow, that's incredible. I'm, that is amazing. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, I have to say. It was a, a complete shock, but it's, you know, it's all part of sort of life's experience. And, uh, and it's lovely. I, you know, I wanted to write the book for the charity while Daisy was still by my side. And um, so she's sort of lying on my feet now and, uh, and we're telling the story. So. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well done, Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> So um, where, where can people get hold of the book? So um, the books are for sale at all good bookshops. It's, it's, um, the Kindle version is on Amazon. And also if, if people want to go onto our website, um, www.medicaldetectiondogs.org.uk, then um, we have it for sale on the site. And actually all the proceeds then go to the, go to the charity. So um, if, if you want the book, um, it's a hardback version at the moment. If you want the book, then um, it'd be good to come and get it from us. And uh, if anyone listening wants to get involved with medical detection dogs, is there any way they can help? Indeed, in the, in the local area, I mean, we're, we're based in Milton Keynes. In terms of training in the local area, we're always looking for puppy walkers and fosterers. As you said, all dogs are living in, in pet homes, so we're always looking for that. But around the, the, the country, we have um, dogs being placed now all around the UK and in Scotland. So we're always looking for supporters, um, for people who would like to get involved, who would perhaps like to be trained up to go and give talks for us, you know, and spread the word. If you go onto the website, there are a whole range of different ideas and ways in which you can support our work. Um, become a puppy sponsor, and um, then you get our magazine, The Sniff, which you know lets you know about the progress we're making and some of the partnerships, the lovely assistance of partnerships that that are benefiting from the work. So there's a there's a whole range of things people can do. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Sadly, we're nearly out of time today. But before we go, I just want to share this Bible reading with you. 
It's read to us by David Shepherd. This is from Psalm twenty-seven, a psalm of David, verses seven to fourteen. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek His face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this: I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. If you'd like to leave us a comment, request a song, or perhaps even share your own story, then please do get in touch. You can call us on free phone: o double three three one two three one two double five. Or you can email info at torchtrust.org. We're also online at www.torchtrust.org, and we're on Facebook and Twitter. So until next week, from me, Marilyn, and from everyone on the Reflections team, goodbye and God bless. Reflections from Torch Trust. Reflections with Marilyn Baker, brought to you by Torch Trust, the Christian organisation with a vision for people with sight loss. Hello, and welcome to Reflections from Torch Trust. We hope you'll enjoy our show, which focuses on faith and disability in today's world. I'm your host, Marilyn Baker, and I'll be with you for the next quarter of an hour. As I'm sure you'll know, today is Remembrance Sunday, a day in which people, groups, and churches all over gather together to remember those who have served in wars and conflicts. We invited the chairman of the local British Legion branch to our studio to find out more about what they do to support and commemorate veterans. Particularly those who are now disabled as a result of their service. Here's Reverend John Morley. Well, everyone knows about the poppy appeal, John, don't they? But perhaps not、mm-hmm. everyone knows what exactly the British Legion actually do. So,、mm-hmm. uh, can you tell me more? I mean, how do you help veterans practically? Well, first of all, the, the, the British Legion helps veterans by providing comradeship, which is so important. When people have been in the forces for quite a long time, they can find themselves a little bit cut off from the ordinary stream of life. So we do provide clubs locally where veterans can go and meet with people with similar background and chat and explain to each other how they're how they're faring. But in other practical ways,、uh, the Poppy Appeal funds all the work of the Royal British Legion in relieving need, whether that's、uh, financial or physical or indeed mental. And we work along with other ex-service charities, and also with the national bodies who provide help for people in need.、Um, but the Poppy Appeal primarily helps 
those who qualify are beneficiaries, as we call them. And to be a beneficiary, um, you are either an, a member, an ex-service person in the Army, the Navy, or the Royal Air Force, the Royal Marines, and that means that you will have been in receipt of payment for that service for seven days. So anyone who has served for seven days in the armed forces is a potential beneficiary. But it also covers dependents. That's to say those children. Those left behind, really. Those left behind, wives and, and families. Uh, and they can all apply to the British Legion for assistance of whatever kind. One of the things that we do is that uh, people will make contact with the British Legion, either locally or nationally. Perhaps they uh, need a mobility scooter. And so someone will go round to their home and chat with them and take some details. And uh, if it's appropriate, they will provide uh, an electric uh, wheelchair for people. That's Wheels. very important, isn't it's it? I mean, so important because there are quite a lot of disabled veterans, aren't there, as a result of wars and things. There, there, there are. So do you have a sort of odd job service even? What about if they need we a do. grab rail put yes, in the we bathroom? We have something, um, a kind of man and a van thing, which is called poppy calls. And they, if uh, their need is, a person's need is made known, then they will send round the poppy calls man and he will see what it is they need. If they have a, an electric scooter, for example, they may have a doorstep that they can't negotiate with it. So they will install a ramp uh, or a grab rail by the door. Uh, all these kinds of things, and uh, for those who qualify, and some of the, some of these things are means tested. But where someone really does need this and can't afford it, then that service is free to them as a result of the money given in the poppy appeal. So the poppy appeals really do bring many extensive services to ex-servicemen, doesn't it? It certainly does, and and their dependents. We also have what what are called admiral, admiral nurses. Uh, the Legion's Admiral Nurse Service helps uh, family carers to uh, to navigate, for example, the dementia journey by giving practical support and advice um, to people caring for loved ones with uh, with dementia. Mm. Um, we also give benefits advice um, and point people in the right direction for anything that they may be um, entitled to. Um, Many practical ways of helping. Now, why do you think it's still important? Because the wars have passed now, those wars anyway. They have, but we uh, have... I believe I'm right in saying that there's only been one year since the Second World War, for example, when a British service person has not died in conflict. So people are still... And we've had many wars since then. We've not fought them in Europe. We've fought them in... Korea, in Cyprus, in Malaya, all over the place. And we've sent our servicemen and women out to those. So the need is still there. And of course, more recently, Afghanistan, where sadly uh, two people lost their lives just a few days ago as we speak. Mm, that's um, happening constantly, isn't it? Very, it is. very sad situations there. Absolutely. Now, I believe you're a chaplain as well. Yes, I'm, I'm chaplain to uh, the Royal British Legion in the county of Leicestershire. As a Christian, what made you want to get involved with it, really? Well, I was a member of the Royal Air Force. I was a chaplain in the Royal Air Force myself for 16 years. And, uh, you know, you see people with such uh, such needs, um, spiritual needs. Uh, an army base or a Royal Air Force station or a ship is really a, a parish in, uh, of another kind. And there are people there um, living quite... Um, 
well, not necessarily dangerous, but prepared to put themselves in the line of, of fire, as it were, if, if the need arises. Making tremendous sacrifices, aren't they? Some of them Being are. Being away some from the, home, their family the lives disrupted. Absolutely, yes. You a know. supreme sacrifice for, mm. for many of them. And we do, the British Legion also does actually organise visits to the uh, war memorial, uh, the war cemeteries in, 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 in Europe, in the mainland of Europe, and uh, particularly in, in the last uh, decade or two, a lot of people who are now from the, first, from the Second World War are now very old themselves. And so we take them there and so they can visit the graves of comrades and uh, remember and pray. And that and so means on. a lot, doesn't it, to people? It means an awful um, lot. They, they uh, want lot to go to and, and kind of yes, resolve right. things in their mind. And, well, it and does give a kind of closure, I think. And, uh, and, and widows, too, you know, they will go out there to their... Um, husband's grave or grandfather's grave or an uncle's grave and uh, just so they can make that connection. What about disabled people needing holidays? I have heard that British Legion provide breaks for people. Yes we do we have what we call poppy breaks and again for those who who qualify we have about five uh, hotels I suppose you would call them across the country uh, where you can go if uh, if you just want a holiday but if you've had a, an operation recently or if you've lost a loved one uh, from the services, then you can go there in those circumstances. It doesn't cost anything uh, and you'll be very well looked after and you'll be amongst people who will understand what you're going through. Are there uh, some with disabled facilities? Yes, then? most of them have uh, very good disabled facilities. I went to one myself in um, Western Supermare earlier this year and uh, all the rooms have uh, proper wet room facilities for those who are in uh, wheelchairs or disabled and they have uh, care people there, nurses and uh, um, people who are trained to look after those with disabilities of all kinds. A very important service I'm sure. It is, it's always well subscribed to. So can ordinary people get involved? How can they help? And if they want to get in touch, you know, mm. what should they do? Well, they, they can. The membership for the British Legion itself is open to anyone. You don't have to have been service or ex-service to join the, the British Legion, but really just to support the aims and objectives of the, uh, of the Royal British Legion, which is largely to bring comradeship and support to those who, uh, who need it. So how can they get in touch then? If people get in touch with their local British Legion branch, if they want to help with the poppy appeal, then that will be absolutely splendid. The more collectors mm-hmm. that we have, the more money we will be able to collect. We have a, a national number, which is a free number, and people can contact it and uh, whatever, if they want some kind of assistance, some benefits advice, uh, to talk about the care homes, poppy breaks and all those things, and uh, then they will be put in touch with someone in the local area who will visit them. That the, the number to call is 0808 802 8080. 0808 802 8080. That's correct. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, John. It's been lovely chatting to you. I've certainly learned a lot more about what the British Legion do. Thank you very much. That's nearly all we have time for. But before we go, I'd like to share a prayer with you. This prayer was written for use on this day by Ian Black and is available to read on spckpublishing.co.uk. Lord Jesus Christ, you gave yourself for our salvation through your death on the cross. Raise all who have fallen through violence and warfare. 
Give to grieving hearts the comfort of your love. Heal the divisions that divide and destroy and grant peace to build anew for your glory and the good of all. Amen. Remember, if you'd like to find out more about anything you've heard on today's show, or if you just want to say hello, do get in touch. The number to call is 0333 123 1255, or you can email us on info at torchtrust.org. Reflections is now available as a monthly audio CD for anyone who can be registered as blind or partially sighted. It's also on SoundCloud. Just search for Torch Trust. Until next time, from me, Marilyn, and all on the Reflections team, goodbye and God bless. Reflections from Torch Trust. Reflections with Marilyn Baker. Brought to you by Torch Trust, the Christian organization with a vision for people with sight loss. Hello, and a very warm welcome to Reflections, the show from Torch Trust that focuses on faith and disability in today's world. I'm your host, Marilyn Baker, and I'll be with you for the next 15 minutes. Today we have a very special show in which we'll be paying tribute to a great man who meant a lot to many. Known as a wonderful pianist, author, songwriter and a passionate evangelist, Peter Jackson sadly passed away October this year during dialysis. Peter, or PJ as he was fondly known, was blind since childhood and was very influential in Torch Trust's early years. We're joined today by two people who knew him well, Torch CEO Gordon Temple and client services leader Sheila Armstrong. Hello. 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 Peter was very well known in the world of Christianity for his music. Can you talk about how you first heard him and the impression it had on you, you know? Yeah, um, I first heard him when I was a young person. I'd volunteered to help the Torch Trust one when I, while I was a student in London and to help get a recording of books and magazines started. And while I was there at uh, what is today the Torchfather and Retreat Centre, Peter visited, and I just remember a room full of people, blind and sighted together, and Peter at the piano um, with his incredible capacity for music oh. And his sort of silver-tongued communication that sort of drew you in. He was. A, I know. He couldn't be in the room without you, without you knowing it. He just drew you in, as you say. You felt sort of captivated by the way he communicated, didn't you? You just felt as if, also, as if he was talking to just you as an individual somehow. I think that that's part of it. I think. I mean, he had just a very engaging style. Yeah, he did. Uh, and I know through through the subsequent years just how often it was his music that that opened an opportunity. But uh, he would then talk about the things that were important to him. Mm. Um, He was a joker, lots of jokes. Now, what do you remember about uh, PJ, as we used to call him? Yeah, well, I think the first time I met him was actually in Edinburgh. And I just started going to the Edinburgh Torch Group 
which he had been uh, helping to form because it was his big vision to start groups, local groups where blind and sighted people could meet together. And the thing that had impressed me about these groups that it wasn't really the blind and the sighted. It was people who were Christians uh, reaching out to people who weren't Christians. And that was, of course, what I longed to do as a new Christian myself. Mm. And that was the first time I, I met him. He came to speak at our group. Well, of course, it was a, this great man, Peter Jackson, you know, coming to speak at the group and everyone was talking about it. And because, uh, of course, a lot of them knew him already. And, uh, I, you know, sometimes when you hear that, you think, oh, I hope I'm not disappointed, mm. <laughs> don't you? But I wasn't disappointed. And I can even remember what he talked about. Mm, that shows and, what a good speaker uh, yeah, it was. was uh, yes, it was a, must have been 1972. And he spoke about the fact that the Lord Jesus was attractive. He drew people and he challenged us to be attractive for Jesus as well. Mm, not fuddy-duddy and... yeah. You know, absolutely. over-religious and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, what did Peter do while he was at Torch, really? What do you think of the lasting things that he did? Well, he, he left an incredible legacy um, from his uh, first spell with, with Torch during the 70s. Quite amazing that uh, in the period from 1970 to 1977, this idea, the Torch Fellowship Group, this getting together of blind and partially sighted people, with sighted people, all on even terms, equal terms. Um, he uh, uh, he just had a real passion for that and a real sense that God wanted him to take that everywhere. Mm. And over though that, that period of six to seven years, he opened more than 60 of those groups. In one year, um, there were 20, over 20 new groups started uh, that's that's extraordinary in any terms, mm. let alone realizing that you know Peter, as a blind man, had to travel often alone the country um, to visit all parts of the country uh, and to do so with a pace that that's just breathtaking. It's it's almost incredible that yeah. so many groups could have been opened in that. Yes, period. the enthusiasm. It, it was definitely like a sort of vision he had to start these groups. Something that he felt God really wanted, and I think this really motivated um, what he was doing, didn't it? I wonder if it's time now that we should hear a song. Uh, some of his playing you know there's a piece that he wrote to demonstrate uh, the sound the feeling of this particular master the tempest is raging shall we hear a bit of that now that was one of his favorites wasn't it
the way Peter could just tear around that keyboard. Yeah, I mean, Peter was actually an incredible pianist mm. um, at all sorts of levels. He, not just that he could hit a lot of notes, although mm. he did hit a lot of notes, um, there was real depth in musicianship. Uh, Peter was a blind man, but we're not talking about somebody who is remembered as a spectacular pianist because he was blind. In any context, he was an amazing pianist. He was. And there's deep musicianship there as well. He he understood different genres of music. Very you know, much so. Mm. Jazz through to, through to classical. He could take a piece of music and play it in the style of Mozart or style of Beethoven or ragtime. And, mm. and it, it just showed that he had a real depth of ability. This wasn't to talk about it as a gift, and it was a gift. It was clearly a gift. Um, but that makes it sound easy. You know, in, in recent years, I've overheard Peter, you know, in his, his later years, in his 70s, doing his scales mm. from one end of the keyboard to the other with incredible rapidity. Yes, I mean, he wrote books and also poems, didn't he, and songs. Do you know, he was quite influential on my own songwriting uh, when I used to listen to his wonderful harmonies and things. Well, we would like to play an extract from one of his books, Heaven in Sight. Let's hear a bit of that. And this is from a chapter in the book called Funny You Should Say That. And it's one of Peter's observations from Northern Ireland. I once did a programme called A Taste of Honey with Gloria Honeyford on Radio Ulster. She interviewed me between records and at the same time carried on a phone-in quiz. A lady telephoned in and Gloria asked her the question, Can you tell me what aperitif means? The lady on the phone did not quite catch it. Pardon, she asked. Aperitif, repeated Gloria. What is it? Oh, said the lady, still rather puzzled. Well... I put mine in a glass overnight. Now it was Gloria's turn to be puzzled. Pardon, she said. A pair of teeth, explained the lady. I take them out and put them in a glass overnight. The one thing I remember so much was his passion, but his lovely way of sharing his faith. Yes, and one of the last trips that I made with uh, Peter... Just a few years ago, we went to the Isle of Man, um, a new group. The torch was being started there. And um, Peter had been given the opportunity to play in a school concert, uh, a school that was renowned for its music and, and to be part of a concert done to a very high standard. Uh, and um, I, I knew that Pete, Peter would want to share his faith. He would want to talk about, about Jesus. And I knew that some of the folks that had been involved in inviting him along were a bit nervous because he, he was an evangelist. He, he didn't hold back, you know. Mm. And they thought, oh, goodness me, this could, this could go horribly wrong, you know. Mm. And, um, uh, and I reassured them, but I was a little bit nervous myself, to be honest. But in the first half, he was given his, his opportunity and he went to the piano and he, he did one of his little things. He... he um, uh, he said, and now a piece from the piano. And he took off a large piece of woodwork for the, from the piano and offered it to the <laughs> audience. Uh, 
But then he did go and play, and he played, and he did this this amazing music of all sorts, uh, and really had the the audience and the choir and the orchestra all thoroughly engaged, eating out of his hand, really. Absolutely. And then he played a piece that he said he'd written in his in his teenage years, when he was really feeling lost, that life made no sense to him, and um, uh, and then he left the stage. In the second half, uh, he was given another uh, another slot and he came back on stage and he said, um, and now I want to tell you about the answers I found and how I met Jesus. And he talked, uh, not in a sort of preachy way, but he just talked about how he'd found that Jesus had the answers Mm, uh, chatting it really, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, and how how life had begun to make sense as he got to know more about the story of Jesus, the gospel, and to get to know for himself um, the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus. And um, he then did the sort of musical tricks with hymn tunes, and he told his faith really in the tunes and the choice of tunes. Uh, that he developed. Uh, he held the audience spellbound. Um, the gospel uh, was communicated very, very clearly that evening. But um, he'd only told his story. Mm. And nobody was offended. And everybody thought it was wonderful. And everybody wanted to know more about Peter and his story and his life. Uh, and to meet him afterwards. And uh, I think that that was really Peter. He he really had uh, in... He was a very... A person who was very alive, very excited mm. about everything. And he was excited about his faith. Mm. He was excited about his, his music. Uh, he was excited about seeing blind and partially sighted people included within a Christian fellowship. Uh, and these were passions that drove him to do tremendous things. Well, thank you very much. He'll be greatly missed, but what a legacy he's left. Well, we thank God for the life of Peter Jackson, a life lived truly well. The Torch Fellowship Groups for People with Sight Loss are just part of his legacy. If you're interested in learning more about these groups, please do get in touch. You can call us on 0333 123 1255 or email info at torchtrust.org. We'll be back next week. But until then, from me, Marilyn, from Gordon, Sheila and everyone on the Reflections team, goodbye and God bless. Reflections from Torch Trust. Reflections with Marilyn Baker Brought to you by Torch Trust The Christian organisation with a vision for people with sight loss Hello and welcome to Reflections from Torch Trust The show that focuses on faith and disability in today's world I'm your host Marilyn Baker and I'll be with you for the next quarter of an hour. If you caught our Easter programme, you'll have heard part one of our interview with author, speaker and pastor Jeff Lucas. Well, we had plenty more things to ask him. 
Our producer, Grace, asked him to share his thoughts on his journey to becoming a successful author. Hello, Jeff. Thank Hi. you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. So uh, last time we spoke, uh, your book, The Cactus Stabbers, was relatively newly out. Um, it's been really popular with our readers and our library. What sort of response have you had to the book? Well, the book is a collection of make you laugh, make you cry, make you think um, short pieces, really, on a wide variety of subjects. I think the response has been positive. Many of the articles were originally published in Premier Christianity, magazine and then have been taken and reworked and reshaped for the book. And um, what I do find is that I've been writing this stuff now for about 15 or 16 years for the magazine. People seem to like humour, um, a light touch. I think humour's great. Fun before death is always a good idea. And um, it they like the learning process that humour can create because when you laugh at something it's because you've understood it so um, I suppose all of that coupled with a decent helping of vulnerability so that people don't get the idea that that Christians are all fluorescently glow-in-the-dark people who get it right all the time the response to the combination of those things has been really very positive and um, actually uh, just written another another book uh, which is about to come out in a few months which is called It's a Dog's Life. A strange title. I won't, mm. I won't bother to try and explain it. But again, it's a collection of these short pieces in the same genre as the Cactus Stabbers. Brilliant. I'm sure we'll be adding that to the library as I well. I hope so, yeah. Yeah. So how, how do you decide what you want to write about? Is it just whatever speaks to you in the moment or do you plan it ahead? Well, somebody interviewed me recently and they said, all these stories about the lash-ups that you make in life, are they really true or do you just make them up? Which was a really nice, polite way of saying, are you really that stupid? And the answer is, yes, I really am that stupid. Um, but I am an observer. I go through life. I'm a, a watcher, if you will, of the unfolding moments of life. And I love taking the everyday absurd, silly, funny tragic moments and then distilling them into words that hopefully help encourage inspire challenge people so these things tend to emerge rather than just be a story and sometimes they emerge out of having a flat tire and and having to slow the traffic down to get my tire changed and noticing that people were yelling at me because I was asking them to slow down for two seconds and then taking that experience and turning it, if you like, into a parable that hopefully can communicate some truth. So I don't sit down with a with a chart that says I need to write about this, but these things just seem to develop and unfold. So a few minutes ago, you mentioned vulnerability being important. And uh, when, when I was looking at your website, it kind of struck me. There's a quote right on the front page there, and it, it mentions vulnerability. It really stood out. Why do you feel that is important? Well, because the truth liberates um, Jesus says the truth will set you free. I think at times we've limited our understanding as Christians about truth to being biblical truth. But truth is true wherever you take it. And when we tell the truth, we let people know that what they feel, they're not feeling it in isolation. They're not, they're not alone, but they're part of the common journey. So 
If I can talk about my struggles, my fears, my occasional panic, sometimes being mugged by doubt, I don't do that just to say, well, this is where I am and this is where I want to stay. I think authentic vulnerability is not just about sharing where you are, but it's also including in that the clear message that you, you don't want to just sit in your struggle and in your brokenness. You do want to pursue Christ. So there's a redemptive direction in the whole thing, but vulnerability is inclusive. It says, yeah, it's okay. We all hobble along at times. And I think if we don't do that, there's a possibility that we might be presenting a Disney-esque Christianity of the super sleek believers. But in reality, I don't think they exist. So just to tell the truth is to say this is how it is and God loves us in the wonder and in the mess of all of that. So I don't think this is an option. I think it's what we're called to. And it's what Jesus practiced. Gethsemane is a stunning example of him displaying his own weakness and actually being depressed. He says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of sorrow. The word overwhelmed there comes from the word barrio, from which we get the word barometer, to be pressed down, to be depressed. So here is Jesus saying to his disciples who are about to go through the most difficult season of their lives and their memory of him before the resurrection is that he's low. He is not skipping towards his own execution. But in sharing his vulnerability, there's a beautiful humanity about that. And so I feel pretty passionate about this, that this, mm. is, this is the way that Christian leaders especially need to be so that we don't sell a, something that isn't really authentic, to mm. put it crudely. We're not selling anything, but you know what I mean, presenting yes. something. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, if even Jesus can be vulnerable and, and just openly expressing vulnerability, then it says that really is something we should take notice of. Yeah, and you've only yeah. got to look to the Psalms. I mean, mm. the Psalms, the book of Psalms is loaded with wailing and crying. You know, somebody has said that the three primary statements in Psalms go like this. Why? Where are you? How long? Well, if God has given us 150 songs that encompass the broad gamut of human experience, which, by the way, includes incredible joy as well. Let's not get the wrong impression about this. But the heights of joy and the depths of despair, it's all there. So if it's all there in Scripture, why can't it be all there in the way that we talk about life and faith too? So just before we go, um, when we last spoke, you were in the middle of your Faith in the Fog tour. Now we speak again and you're on the There Are No Ordinary People tour. Um, have you seen much difference in your touring experience in that time? Well, in this new tour, we're, we're hitting completely different issues, really. The Faith in the Fog tour, based on John 21, the breakfast that Jesus cooked for his friends, and it did come out of some of my own struggles with depression some years ago and perfectionism and disappointment, frankly. This tour is focused on this amazing character of Barnabas, this man who demonstrated generosity. He put his reputation on the line in welcoming Saul into the church. Saul had been the persecutor, Christian killer. I mean, this was the equivalent, if I can put it like this, of a person from ISIS turning up at a church and claiming to be a convert and the people in that church having lost people to that radical terrorism. 
it would take quite a lot of grace mm. to open your arms to such a person. Barnabas demonstrates that. He is willing to be a servant rather than the key leader, even though he was, uh, was a leader in the church for four years before Saul, who became Paul, was even converted. He ultimately allowed Paul to emerge as the key leader. So there are so many lessons, Grace, from this guy's life. And Barnabas is largely overlooked. He's not a character that we know a great deal about. But there's enough about him in the Bible to show us that we can live the ordinary life beautifully. Everything isn't awesome. And the Christian life isn't endlessly awesome. But we can make good choices each day to endeavor by God's grace to live life beautifully. That's what he did. And so that's what this tour is all about. So when, when does this tour go on until? Well, actually, it's over. It's oh. completed now. We were touring in the first couple of weeks um, of November. We're hoping to do it again next year. We're going to see how things go. But the heartbeat of the tour actually is in the book, There Are No Ordinary People, uh, Grace. So even though the tour is finished, if people want to get the the core message Again, um, go to the website jefflucas.org or to Amazon or Eden and uh, they can get the book from there. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, that does sound interesting. I'm amazed he manages to fit it all in. And don't forget, Torch Trust has a number of Jeff's books available to borrow in Braille, Giant Print, Audio and Daisy. His latest book, The Cactus Stubbers, will be added to the library soon. But now I'd like to share with you an extract from one of his previous books. Within weeks of deciding to follow Christ, I found myself at a youth camp, ensconced in a wigwam-like tent for two whole weeks. I went there feeling somewhat jaundiced, because my pre-conversion experiences in the great outdoors weren't great. But, despite my initial hesitation, that youth camp was really quite marvellous. Fragile, fledgling decisions were galvanised, even if I was a little over-enthusiastic as a new convert. Every evening service during the camp would end with an altar call, and I responded every night, whatever the issue. If the preacher was calling for martyrs, missionaries, or throwing out the net in the hope of recruiting a new leader for the Women Aglow group, I'd dash forward, offering myself to any opportunity for service. I repented of a few things that were not actually sin, I made impossible promises and pledges to God that I had no hope of following through on. I even composed a couple of songs that I performed for the entire camp during one of the evening gatherings. They listened, smiled, even applauded, but were probably praying for my early death. The songs I wrote were likely tuneless and laden down with horrid clichés. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the tree. I was bound, but now I'm free. Love that's deeper than the sea. And my response is to give you me. You get the drift. We used to end the evening by sharing testimonies, 
stories of how God had helped us that day or week. Again, I think that my zeal cancelled out any shred of thoughtful intelligence, as I regaled the gathered group with stories of how God had said, acted, intervened, and done things, whereas in reality he had done nothing of the sort. I was grateful to find my lost socks in the laundry area, but it's doubtful that the Lord sent a junior angel on a specific mission to help me to a. locate the missing socks and b. help me to glorify him for their wondrous recovery. But amidst the youthful over-exuberance and quite a lot of silliness, there's no doubt that attending that camp solidified my initial conversion experience, not least because I spent a fortnight hanging out with others who had made the same choice. This was definitely peer pressure of the most positive and helpful kind. And that extract was read by Robert Smith, one of Torch's audio transcribers. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. If you'd like to learn more about anything on today's programme, please do get in touch with us. You can email us at info at torchtrust.org or phone us on 0333 123 1255. That's 0333 123 1255. Or even contact us via social media by searching for Torch Trust on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll tune in again next week. Goodbye, and God bless. Reflections from Torch Trust.